This is Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray uh, that you would help us, Lord. We have been welcoming your presence or maybe calling our souls to wake up to your presence that is always with us. And I pray now that as we open your word, God, that we would hear from you, that you would come into our inner lives, that whatever amount of attention span and openness to you that each one of these individuals offers, that you would take the inch we give you and take a mile instead, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The uh, 17th century Swedish king Adolf Frederick stamped his name in the history books for reasons that have nothing to do with royalty or politics but food. He was famous for hosting extravagant dinner parties that featured rare imported ingredients and this was before Top Chef or Michelin stars or anyone was ever called a foodie. King Adolf threw his last great feast on Fat Tuesday of 1771. That's the day before Ash Wednesday when people often will feast on what they plan to fast from for the 40 days that follow. Fat Tuesday is this Tuesday, so let this be a cautionary tale for you, my friends. He enjoyed a feast of caviar lobsters, plural, sauerkraut, smoked herring, and he washed all of it down with plenty of champagne, but King Adolf was just getting started. For dessert, he had requested his personal favorite, semla, which was a traditional Swedish bun filled with almond paste, whipped cream, and served with hot milk. He had not one, but 14 portions of semla. Several hours later, he collapsed dead, and the historically documented cause of death is digestive problems. Then, there's the Irish extremist Bobby Sands, who is the central figure, or a central figure in the Troubles, a period of political strife between Northern Ireland and the UK. He was arrested in 1981 for what he and many others termed freedom fighting, but just as many said was terrorism. And while being held in prison, he went on a very heavily publicized hunger strike. On March 1st of 1981, he refused to eat until he was no longer being called a criminal. I'm not eating until something changes, and if this is what it's going to take to get the attention of the powers that be, then so be it. Bobby Sands died in prison on May 5th, 1981 of self-inflicted starvation 66 days after he began his hunger strike. One man remembered for eating himself to death, another for starving himself to death. So we're continuing our teaching series today, Unforced Rhythms of Grace, Nine Core Practices for a Rule of Life. And up to this point, we have covered prayer, scripture, solitude, and community. And today we come to fasting, the spiritual practice of not eating for a period of time for the sake of spiritual nourishment. Now, all the way back in Genesis, the very beginning of the biblical story, God created man and woman, not as floating souls, but as embodied image bearers. So people are set apart from every other aspect of God's creation in that we image God on the earth, and we do so through our bodies. 
Biblical resurrection at the other end of the story tells of a time when heaven will come to earth and all wrong will be banished and all will be restored. And that includes a bodily resurrection when we will live forever with God in bodies. And in the thick of the biblical plot that falls in between those two scenes, scripture teaches a way of relating to God as both body and soul. So I'm not just a body. There is something eternal about me housed within this body of mine, but neither am I just a soul because this body is the vessel through which I image God on the earth. In the modern West, we've driven a wedge between body and soul that does not exist in the biblical story, in church history, or in the global church today. Look back with me at your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, where we read from just a moment ago. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What on earth does not eating have to do with following Jesus? I mean, how could intentionally going hungry possibly grow me up in faith? You see, if fasting is gonna make any sense at all or have any formative power in our lives, we've gotta begin by reconnecting what has in the West been torn apart, and that is the body and the soul. We've gotta get back to our roots, an embodied spirituality. Most of us have learned to know our souls through the story of God, but to know our bodies through the story of Western culture. And that's a problem because Western culture has a dysfunctional relationship with the body. Theologian Scott McKnight, in his book on fasting, summarizes the primary ways that the modern Western person relates to their body. I'll give you his top three, monster, celebrity, and cornucopia. So before we get into the biblical way of relating to our bodies that fasting fits within, we've gotta get a lay of the land, the deformed starting places that we all come from when it comes to understanding spirituality and the body. So for some of us, the body is a monster to be conquered. We subconsciously think of the body as this ferocious monster of competing desires that I then spend my life conquering, meaning that spiritual maturity is therefore the conquest against my body's desires. Spiritual maturity means overcoming my wandering eyes of lust and taming my out of control taste for alcohol or putting strict boundaries around my rampant materialism. And spiritual maturity very well may include all of those things, but when our primary view of the body is through that lens, fasting then becomes the spiritual equivalent to Olympic training, where fasting is pushing my body beyond its limits so that I can achieve an extraordinary level of spiritual fitness, or maybe even worse. We can take a very good practice like fasting and pair it with an already destructive relationship to food through something like an eating disorder or simply a control mechanism. For others of us, the body is a celebrity to be glorified. This is a more narcissistic approach where the body becomes the medium through which I attempt to derive a misplaced level of identity and value. I spend a disproportionate amount of time and energy shaping my body through diet and exercise and other means to become desirable or fashionable or acceptable to myself or to some other reference group. 
And finally, some of us uh, naturally relate to our bodies as the vessel through which uh, we satiate our desires and calm our unwanted emotions. A cornucopia to be filled, meaning that twisting horn that is filled with an endless supply of produce and rich food uh, is a picture for how some treat our bodies. Pleasure through the body becomes the place that I aim my desire. Pleasure through a relationship to alcohol that I find it difficult to take the edge off without, or a relationship to caffeine I find it difficult to engage in the world without, or a habit of overeating that is driven far more by emotion than it is by a need for nourishment, or the pursuit of another sexual conquest, a hedonistic, or to put it biblically, a gluttonous relationship to our bodies that shapes us increasingly into pleasure and comfort addicted people who cope with our lives through delicate palates and fancy drinks and expensive restaurants. Fasting is a spiritual practice that freely acknowledges that not all of our spiritual formation comes through our mind, but some comes through our stomachs. For example, the priest called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners, why? Because of what he ate and who he ate with. When Jesus sent out his disciples ahead of him to the villages to which he would go to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, he included specific instructions about what they'd eat and who they'd eat with. This is Luke chapter 10. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. So Jesus' instructions concerning the uh, coming of the kingdom of God include the food that we eat and don't eat and the company we keep as we do it. Eat what they eat. Those were Jesus' instructions. Can you sit at the table of someone from another culture and eat outside of your preferences for the sake of the gospel? And if not, have your attachments to a particular way of eating and drinking become deformational rather than formational? The Christian desert fathers and mothers of the third and fourth century defined gluttony not as overeating but as being too fastidious in our choices concerning food. So what if gluttony in a city like ours is less about overconsumption and it's more about a fastidious attachment to a particular way of eating that may at times get in the way of love? Is the way that you relate to food a pathway to perfection? Is it a pathway to indulgence? Is it a pathway to comfort? Or is it a pathway to love? Both biblically, historically, and today globally, fasting is a core practice to spiritual maturity on par with scripture and prayer and solitude and community. But if fasting is gonna make sense to us today, if it's gonna have formative power in our lives, we've gotta start by reconnecting the body and the soul. And that brings us to the Hebrew Bible, where the first mention of fasting as a spiritual practice is found in the book of Exodus. Moses' 40-day fast on Mount Sinai, which was then followed by a command for all of Israel to fast on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. 
by the time we get to the prophet Isaiah, or the prophet Zechariah, excuse me, there are four distinct annual fasts that are observed by the whole of the nation of Israel. These are examples of rhythmic fasting, yeah, biblically, meaning an ordered, predictable way of fasting that is set apart to mark particular times of year and is observed by the whole nation. But also throughout the Old Testament, we see many examples of responsive fasting. Uh, Elijah fasted for 40 days just like Moses did in response to a profound encounter with God. Esther calls the people to fast for three days before her decisive meeting with the king. The prophet Joel prescribes a nationwide fast for the sake of repentance. And Jehoshaphat says that all of Israel should fast in the midst of military trouble. Ezra calls for a fast for safe passage before the exiles return home to Israel. None of those are based on rhythms at set times of the year, but all of them are responses to a sacred encounter with God in a given moment. So in the Hebrew Bible, fasting is practiced both as rhythm and as response. It is a regular rhythm for spiritual maturity and it is a response to a sacred encounter with God. That brings us up to Jesus. Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness before he began his ministry. That was both a symbolic act by which he was embodying the Exodus story and it was an actual fast that he really lived before he began teaching and miracle working and calling disciples. The historical evidence suggests that Jesus and his disciples likely came of age fasting two days a week, which was the common practice for all Israelites in the first century. And while Jesus and his disciples likely did not fast during his three-year ministry, Jesus does say in Mark chapter two that he assumes his disciples will resume this two-day-a-week rhythm of fasting after his death and resurrection. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches on the topic of fasting. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now notice two things about Jesus' teaching on fasting. The first is, Jesus assumes his disciples will fast. He says, when you fast, not if you fast. And then secondly, when you fast for the motives that Jesus prescribes, the Father will reward you. Meaning there's a gift waiting on the other side of fasting when it's done in a true, from a true and proper motive. Now, Jesus never commands fasting. So you are absolutely free to choose when and how and even if you fast. But Jesus does assume fasting and he names the rewards of the practice, which I would argue carries just as much significance as an outright prescription does, only it means that the motivation for our fasting should come out of desire and not out of a sense of duty. All to say, in the life of Jesus, fasting is practiced both as a rhythm and as a response. And as I mentioned a moment ago, by the time of Jesus, it was common for all Jewish people to fast two days a week, and the early church, as Jesus predicted, continued that practice. In the Didache, the first Christian writings that we have outside of the New Testament, all of the church is commanded to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. 
Almost all of the early church fathers taught extensively on the practice of fasting, and Lent, the six weeks prior to Easter, was originally a fast where followers of Jesus did not eat each day until sundown. In fact, the Muslim practice of Ramadan was developed later and was originally based on the Christian practice of Lent. So what happened to fasting? I mean, how could something that was so common that the whole church observed it twice a week become so uncommon that no one ever really practices it at all unless you're going for a black belt? Well, a sharp decline in the practice of fasting in the Western church runs exactly parallel to the, to the rise of a disembodied spirituality, which was popularized by the 16th and 17th century Enlightenment. As the philosopher Rene Descartes so famously said, I think, therefore I am. In other words, I am formed into the right kind of person by thinking the right kind of ideas. And what we believe really is a part of our transformation, but what we do with our bodies shapes who we become just as much as the ideas that we believe does. With the Enlightenment, an unbiblical divide came between the soul and the body, and then it rose in popularity until fasting stopped making sense in the midst of Descartes' myth. So steep was the drop in a two-day-a-week churchwide practice that in the 18th century, John Wesley wrote, I fear that there are now thousands of Christians, so-called, both in England and Ireland, who following the same bad example have entirely left off fasting who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not fast twice in a month. Twice in a month? <laughs> Sounds pretty intense, right? One of the more striking features that I notice when I read the scripture is just how important the body is to spirituality in the Bible. And one of the more striking features that I notice when I observe the church of my time is just how unimportant the body is in the modern church. Modern Western Christians, generally speaking, find it much more natural to relate to God through the head and the heart than we do through our bodies. Right, a Bible study where I gain more intellectual information and understanding about God, sure. A Holy Spirit conference where I ask God to experientially move the teachings of Jesus from my head to my heart where I experience them in my emotions, absolutely. Don't eat. I feel uncomfortable, hungry, potentially dizzy when you deny your body one of its most core and essential desires. Why? It is very hard for post-enlightenment, Descartes-influenced Westerners like us to fathom a way of meeting God that comes to us not through the mind, but through the stomach. And that brings us to the very heart of the matter, to the most important question for today. Why fast? It's uncomfortable, unnatural, and difficult, especially at first. So what would motivate someone to fast? Well, in her article, Why Fasting Makes Sense, author Amy Johnson Frickholm summarizes the motivations to fast, both biblically and experientially, under these three headings, attentiveness, freedom, and compassion. So first, fasting is about attentiveness. Fasting is an intentional way of directing my deep desire within me. Because we all hold deep desires, and we all find it difficult to live constantly present to those things we desire deepest. Like I've got hopes and longings for who my children are gonna grow up and become, for the unique true self that God wrote in them at first and, and the gift of life they have to offer the world and the joy of life they have in living as their true self in the world and I've got shallow desires. 
like what I'll have for lunch later today. And one universal truth, but rarely acknowledged uh, truth about the human condition is that if you pressed me to tell you which one of these matters more, my children's becoming or today's lunch, it would be no contest, right? It's obviously who my children will become. But in spite of that fact, human beings spend the vast majority of their lives far more attentive to our shallow desires than we do to our deep ones. During the 18 years that my children live under my roof, 18, I think, that's the plan for now. During those 18 years, the time I spend plotting my next meal will far outweigh the time that I spent hoping for their maturity and joy. Surface desires are just a whole lot louder than deep ones. Surface desires, like hunger for the next meal, tap me on the shoulder three times a day and constantly want attention, while deep desires are mostly quiet and content to go unnoticed. Fasting is withholding a surface level desire for a time to live in concert with deep desire. I care more about the friendships that I cultivate in the working years of my adult life than the tasks on this week's agenda. But the tasks are a whole lot more demanding than the friends. And that is why rates of loneliness, depression, and even suicide skyrocket at retirement age. Because accomplishments are forgotten in an instant and the social power that success won you in your industry goes the second you walk out of that industry. Right, how successful or unsuccessful you were in your professional life after retirement is exactly as relevant as how successful or unsuccessful you were in sports in high school in your 40s. Right, no one cares and it's sort of weird to talk about, right? <laughs> but relationships, the relationships you cultivated or didn't during those busy years of working your way up the ladder, that's what you're left with on the other side of retirement. So how do I live today for who I'm becoming and not what I'm accomplishing? That is the question, the core question to human joy. I care more about the depth of intimacy that I cultivate with my wife and the memories that we make over the years than who's gonna pick up the kids from soccer this Wednesday evening. But of course, the logistical needs of this week are loud and the intimacy is quiet and it can always wait. The point that I'm trying to make is that unchecked, our surface desires consume the majority of our lives, even though it is the deep desires we would all agree are most important. David Brooks, in his book, The Road to Character, says there's really only two targets at which you can aim your life, either your resume or your eulogy. It's either what a piece of paper says about you at your retirement or what people say about you at your funeral. And of course, given a moment of reflection, we would all say that a eulogy is far more important than a resume, and yet we all tend to live for our resumes more than we do our eulogies. So how do I live for what I want most? Starve lesser appetites and intentionally hold the deeper ones up front in your imagination. Remain attentive to your deep desire, and that involves restraining and taming surface desire. So I think of fasting primarily as praying with my body. And when I'm sitting in a meeting and my stomach embarrassingly growls, I think of that as an intercession going up from my body to the throne room of heaven saying, God, I'm hungry because there's something I'm hungrier for than satisfying this surface level hunger because I actually believe that that is how the Lord hears it. So first, fasting is about attentiveness. Second, fasting is about freedom. Thomas Aquinas is one of the more influential figures in all of church history, and he defined what scripture calls idols 
as substitute gods. <clears throat> Aquinas said that every culture has its own substitute gods, but they all have this in common, that they promise freedom to their worshipers, but in the end they imprison them. And he named the substitute gods of his day money, power, pleasure, and honor. And honor can be a confusing term. Uh, by honor, he meant fame and prestige. Uh, if fame is the desire to be perceived as important by a whole mass of people, prestige is the desire to be perceived as important by a select reference group whose opinion you really care about. Those are the substitute gods of Aquinas' time, and they sound eerily familiar to our own, don't they? Aquinas argues that these idols hurt us in the end because they don't appeal to the true self, but to the false self, the, the disguise that you or I have a weakness for wearing around in the world. So let's play a little game of name your substitute God, shall we? Money, power, pleasure, and honor. Start by eliminating what is least appealing to you off of this list. Like maybe you don't really care about uh, feeling powerful or important in a particular room, so you can just throw that one out first. And maybe success isn't your drug and you don't really have a taste for being perceived a certain way by the masses or by a particular reference group of people, so you can wipe that one away too. And now we're down to money and pleasure and here is where it gets interesting, my friends. Maybe you actually really do like the feeling of a new jacket draped over your shoulders. And maybe you don't care so much about perceive, being perceived as special in the successful sense of the word, but you do care about being perceived as fashionable in a more materialistic or desirable sense of the word. And maybe you don't aim your life at climbing the success ladder, but the experience ladder, like the next adventure, the next vacation, just the next weekend, well, that does preoccupy a lot of your idle imagination. You see, now we're getting closer. Most people can identify and name their substitute gods with just a little bit of honest self-reflection. And that brings us to the most important part of this whole exercise. Aquinas is not claiming that there's anything at all wrong with the four things on this list. Uh, right, money exists in the world and someone's got to steward it and it can be stewarded for good or for ill. And power is a core trait of God and is shared with all of his image bearers. Pleasure is a God-given gift and it's one of the ways that we actually derive God's presence in our lives today and honor is often given to those who should be esteemed and even imitated. There's nothing wrong with anything on this list in and of itself but as attachments as the focus of your life's subconscious attention and the motivating force behind your pursuits, these substitute gods objectify us, they rob us blind and they imprison us in the end. You see, neutral appetites like those on Aquinas' list become substitute gods when, the, when we ask them to give us something that they fundamentally cannot deliver and that's keepable satisfaction. Right, honor will give you what you want for a moment. You will feel important and you will stand up a little bit straighter, but it will never be enough. You'll need the same affirmation for the very, from the very same group again tomorrow. You will surrender your identity to a substitute God that drip feeds your false self until you are entirely addicted to it. Fasting is the spiritual practice of shedding our attachment to lesser loves. Because when we fast, we are practicing self-denial. 
And if we do not learn to deny ourselves, we bow the knee before substitute gods, distorting ourselves and the world around us. We build our lives upon a lie when it is the truth that sets us free. Hebrews chapter 12, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's throw off the sin and let's throw off the neutral appetites that could become attachments and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Only the worship of God delivers a sort of satisfaction that we can keep, a sort of return that does not diminish because only God appeals to our true self. We fast to enjoy lesser loves so that through these lesser loves, through these gifts, we can perceive and draw connection to the giver himself. You see, fasting doesn't eliminate our desire for pleasure or these good things from our lives. That just turns the body into a monster to be conquered. Fasting tames them and keeps them in their proper place so that the very things that might imprison us become gifts we connect to the giver who knows and truly satisfies us. So fasting is about attentiveness, it's about freedom, and then finally fasting is about compassion. I once got to spend a week in a Kenyan orphanage called Mazzini, and on the very last night I was there, I was invited to lead a Bible study for all of the kids after dinner. So about 50 orphans, every ages from infant all the way up to their early 20s gather into this living room and it's unbearably hot. And there's mosquitoes swarming around inside all over the place and every forehead is glistening with sweat. And this one teenage girl suggests that we open with a hymn and she just begins to sing out a cappella. And then before I knew it, like everyone had joined in. There were smiles beaming across every face. People were jumping and laughing. The couch cushions had been turned into drums. And then as soon as that song ended, another one kicked off. It was joy like I've never seen before in my life. And having beheld their incredible gratitude and joy in the face of the simplest of lifestyles, I left Mazzini freshly aware of all the plush comforts that surround my life, reconsidering and reevaluating how I might relate to my material world differently. And who among us hasn't had some kind of experience like that? Confronted by all that you had and all that you take for granted, maybe all the ways that comfort and access have deformed you and thrown your priorities out of whack. I mean, it probably doesn't take a lot of reflection for you to recall your own version of my story of that disaster relief effort that you participated in and the clarity that came as a result or the year that you served in the Peace Corps or the relationship with the family that you developed through FPNO. We all have experience like that. And of course the sobering truth is that those moments of clarity tend to go as quickly as they come. Most of us then quite quickly find our way right back into the habits of consumption that have been formed by our class and our culture rather than developing habits out of the brief moment of clarity that pierced all of that with a, something more clear and true. So how do we allow clarity rather than comfort to become the foundation from which we form our minds and habits? Fasting. Isaiah chapter 58. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and, stri and strife, in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. 
And as the passage proceeds, God then prescribes a new fast for the people of Israel. Is not this the kind of fast I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and free the oppressed, to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter, to clothe the naked and spend yourself on behalf of the poor. You see, God takes issue with his people not because they're fasting, but because fasting is not producing within them compassion. Remember, it's not about how you do the practices. It's about what the practices are supposed to be doing to you. When God prescribed the Day of Atonement as a fast for all of Israel, he said, it is a day of Sabbath rest and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. Now the English word deny is the Hebrew ano, which literally translates as afflict, disturb, or oppress. You can see why the English translators went with deny, right? <laughs> Uh, afflict myself, oppress myself? What's up with that? God's not only prescribing the practice, he is naming the intended fruit of the practice. You see, the Hebrew word that we translate to English as compassion most literally means co-suffer. And that's what fasting is. It is willingly entering into the suffering of someone else. My friend Matt was fasting for a full day, 24-hour fast, sun up to sundown, for the very first time in his life. And it was around lunchtime, and he was feeling mostly weak and miserable. He was tired and fatigued and hungry and hangry. And he was walking through Soho in the heart of New York City, home to all of the flagship stores of the world's most exclusive and fashionable brands. And he, of course, has a closet at home with more than enough in it, and yet he is wanting more and more as he's making his way down these city blocks. Soho happens to spill out right onto Bowery, right by the Bowery Mission, which is the New York City equivalent to the Portland Rescue Mission. And the line to collect a free hot lunch is stretching all the way down the block, just like it does every day. People waiting to get in for a meal and maybe an hour's escape from the winter cold. And when he told me the story later, Matt pulled me into that moment with him. Talked about how he'd passed the Bowery Mission at mealtime without thought so many times before. But today he felt in his own body what these men and women feel in their bodies every single day, weakness and hunger. And in that moment, Matt just began to confess his plenty and his out of control desire for more, more, more. He began to intercede in prayer for those hungry bodies that he had found it so easy to walk past before, right there in the jaws of an intersection that he had stood at a thousand times before, he felt compassion that he never had before because fasting is co-suffering. It is to willingly carry the pain of another in my own body. And when we practice fasting consistently over time, uh, fasting it becomes a way of first internally entering the experience of another that I might ultimately externally enter the experience of another. Our stomachs begin to guide our feet until our friendships start to broaden beyond our class and our culture because the practice of fasting is changing my heart and it's opening my eyes and ultimately it's moving my hands and feet in new relationship. So fasting, family, is a core but largely forgotten practice from the way of Jesus that holds the, my attention on the deep desires that I want most but find easiest to ignore, that frees me from the human propensity to surrender myself to substitute gods, and that cultivates compassion in my soul that moves my hands and feet. And both biblically and historically, fasting has been practiced two ways, 
rhythmically and reactively. But I would suggest that we've got to start by practicing fasting rhythmically or it would never occur to us in a sacred moment of encounter with God that fasting might be the appropriate reactive response. And so the rhythm of fasting that we hope that all who call Bridgetown home will adopt is a weekly 24-hour fast. Meaning pick a day of the week and fast from dinner the night before, after dinner the night before, until dinner time the next day. It means missing two meals. Now look, this is not health class, but it is impossible to talk about denying your body nutrition without addressing the question, yeah, but isn't that unhealthy? In short, no. Quite the opposite, in fact. There's all sorts of health benefits to fasting. It can cleanse your body of toxins and increase your metabolism and reduce your weight. It can lower your insulin levels and inflammation and blood pressure, strengthen your immune system and reduce your heart rate. Fasting can slow aging, it can protect against and possibly even reverse many diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and a number of neurological disorders including Alzheimer's. So it comes as no surprise that medical experts have been touting uh, toward, not cautioning against, uh, fasting for a very long time now. Every Tuesday, I fast. From after dinner on Monday until Tuesday dinner. I pray with my body, and I make a weekly contribution to an organization I trust that serves the global poor for the cost of breakfast and lunch on that particular day, and then I break my fast in celebration with my Bridgetown community on Tuesday night. But a weekly 24-hour fast is very likely a steep learning curve for quite a few of us. And with every spiritual practice, it is always wise to start right where you are and start right away. So as an on-ramp to make our way toward a rhythm of fasting, I want to suggest that we commit this Lenten season to a rhythm of abstinence. Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter, is observed by the church around the world as 40 days of abstinence, identifying my body with Christ's 40-day fast in the wilderness and his suffering on the cross. Lent is a way to live in concert with my deep desires for resurrection life, a way to shed my attachments to the lesser loves that have gotten their claws into me, and it is about compassion. It is willingly entering into the suffering of another, Jesus And Lent begins this Wednesday. And I'm using the term abstinence and not fasting on purpose when I talk about Lent, and that's got nothing to do with sex. Abstinence is a restriction on any form of consumption, meaning to give up alcohol or caffeine or meat or television or shopping for the sake of Lent is a way of directing my attention to God that is technically called abstinence. The most well-known story of abstinence in the Bible is when Daniel refused the meat and rich foods and sugars from the king's table and chose to live on nothing but fruits, vegetables, and grains instead. That often goes by the term the Daniel fast, which is technically incorrect. It's the Daniel abstinence, but I'm not here to pick a fight about terminology. The Daniel fast has a much better ring to it, so I can see why we landed on that. I just want to clarify the practice because this Lenten season, You, every last one of you, is invited to participate with us in a very unique Bridgetown Church-wide 40 days of prayer and fasting, a Lenten season of faith. And yes, when I say prayer and fasting, I technically mean prayer and abstinence, but prayer and fasting just sounds so much better that we're going with that, okay? 
I am living with the firm conviction that God's invitation to the life of Bridgetown Church is to live for 40 days in a way that will increase our faith, that will help us to recover the experience of just how close and active and interested God really is, a wide-eyed belief in the availability and power of God in your personal life. I am living with the core conviction that God is eager to increase your faith over these 40 days if you will only make space for him to do so. And particularly, there are four expressions of faith or four deep desires that I believe God has spoken to me, highlighting four ways he is eager to meet you in your fasting and answer your prayers this Lenten season. And to be completely honest, I'm aware that this has been quite a dense sermon on fasting, but the entire thing was just a preamble to this point. So whatever I've got to do to get you back, lean in now, my friends, okay? I wanna name these four expressions, and I would ask you to listen to what I'm sharing prophetically. By which I mean, listen as I describe each of these if one of them puts language to the stirring of God's activity in your soul, or if one of them kind of wipes the dirt off a deep desire that has been sitting in a dark corner of your inner life, okay? Here's the four, dreams, power, family, and direction. First, dreams. Some among us have followed Jesus for a long time, have lived and even led spiritually, have seen it all, so to speak. And I believe that God is calling you in this stage of your spiritual life beyond settling or coasting and into dreaming. I believe that your wildest, most wide-eyed and wonderstruck days behind Jesus are still to come, but the great enemy of God's work in your life is the realistic expectations that can develop as you walk for years behind him. Psalm 126 says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Acts chapter two describes when the spirit falls and it says in the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. You see many among us have walked with Jesus for a long time. We are spiritual old men and women so to speak. And that means that we have allowed our spiritual expectations our many instances to be ground down to a sophisticated level. And I believe that God wants to restore your fortune so that you are like one who dreams again. I believe that if you sacrifice a lesser hunger to make space to live in concert with your deep desire, he will restore your fortunes and open up your eyes in a childlike faith that you were never meant to mature beyond even as you mature in walking behind him. So dreams and then power. Others of you are longing for the spirit to write adventure stories in your life. In Luke chapter four, we're told that the spirit anointed Jesus at his baptism and that the same spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and then he returned from the wilderness to the city in the power of the spirit that had already anointed him. And then when Jesus chatted with Nicodemus about what those who are led by the spirit look like in the world, he said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Don't you want to be driven by the wind of the Spirit where you were not planning to go to experience what you cannot explain, but you see its effects all around you? 
I'm talking about adventures of seeing the furthest away coworker in your office come to faith, of going out to a restaurant for dinner and then laying your hands on the server and praying over them and calling something out of their life. I'm talking about sharing a word of prophecy with the neighbor that you've known for years but never had a deep conversation with. I'm talking about the ministry of the Spirit through your life, breaking the confines of the church walls and spilling into the city where you live your days. Don't you want to live life empowered by the very Spirit that empowered Jesus? I believe that the Spirit is dying to write wind-blown adventure stories in your life that will discomfort you at first, thrill you in the midst of them, and open up your eyes and raise your faith in the end. Will you partner with the Spirit by making space through small sacrifice in your life that He might pour extraordinary blessing? Then there's family. Some among us, and I particularly have parents in mind, have hopes that have never become prayers for a particular family member like passive hopes for your children that have not become active and constant prayers, or maybe anxieties or worries about a particular child that have never been converted into daily, deep desire prayers that you lay at the feet of Jesus morning by morning. I'm talking about the longings of a mother or father for who you see God has created your children to be, the future and the true self that he has written into them that you've never talked about, agreed upon, put on paper, and said, God, I'm going to withhold a deeper or a cheaper appetite because I want to hold my child's becoming before you every single day for 40 days and see what you can do with that. In Ezra chapter 8, we read, There by the the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Life is a long journey that has walked through many different changes in terrain and troubles and dangers. I believe God wants to do more in the life of your children in 40 days than you currently imagine is possible that will be written into the future by, through the dreams of praying parents. Will you partner with the Spirit's transformation in your children these 40 days by choosing to live attentive to your deep desire? And then finally, direction. Some among us are at a critical crossroads, a decisive moment in our lives, where you will choose to go one way or the other. In Acts chapter 13, when the church at Antioch was at a critical crossroads, choosing who to send out as ministers, they prayed and fasted. In the very next chapter, having had fruitful ministry that they sent out, they're trying to decide who to raise up as leaders in those churches, and again, they pray and fast. Meaning that there is biblical mandate for one of the ways that we fast to say, God, I'm standing here at a crossroads. I know this is a defining moment in my life and I don't want to only walk into my future with human wisdom. What I want is the conviction that comes from hearing your still small voice and knowing that I'm walking in step with the Spirit. So will you who are standing in a similar crossroads partner with the Spirit through 40 days of prayer and fasting that say wisdom is great, but I want conviction to go alongside it. So here's the question. I asked you to listen prophetically. Is there an invitation in there for you? Is there one of those things that when I named it, it was like I was putting language to what's been stirring in your inner life with God? Or that just kind of wiped the dust off of a deep desire that you have found easy to ignore? I am coming to you today, family, with an assignment. An assignment that says in Psalm 50, gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. 
I do not want to gather you to me. I want, you, I want to gather you before the Lord as a consecrated people making a covenant with him by small sacrifice that he might return your small sacrifice with his extraordinary power and blessing, raising your faith and mine in the end. So hear, O Bridgetown Church, the word of the Lord. Seek him with your whole self and see just how much God can do in 40 days. Fasting does not create the work of God. All that fasting does is keep you aware of and participatory with the work of God within you. So give him 40 days, and it is my belief that the level of faith in God's ever-present love and power will increase in you and in us. It is my belief that God is eager to do it. It is my belief that what we need as a church full of riches of spiritual maturity is a childlike faith that no level of spiritual maturity is ever meant to outrun. And to equip you to live this together, we've created some coaching on Lenten fasting as well as a 40-day morning and evening prayer podcast to guide us in our scattered lives according to common prayers throughout the 40 days of Lent. Gerald will share a little bit more about that here in just a minute. But let me say this in closing. The one and only motivation for participation in this should be desire, not duty. I mean this with complete sincerity. If as I'm talking, you're thinking, ah, it is Lent, I should probably do something like that. Don't do it. Just let it pass you by. Pray that God would awaken greater desire for your, him within you and then catch up with this next Lenten season. But if as I'm speaking, there's desire waking up in you and you're saying, you know what? There's something God's brought to mind this morning and I want it. I want it so much more than anything I could think of to sacrifice for 40 days. And I want to live attentive to it. I don't want to forget it when I leave this place. I want to live attentive to it and give God a chance to be God in my life. If that's what's happening, then I would just say, this is the Spirit whispering to you. It's a pathway. Walk in it.